Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. If you haven't already, click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody also enjoyed our last episode with Gareth Jennings. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to mention our partnership with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brands strive to provide premium, aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at capouk. Now, for today's guest, here is a snippet of what to expect. The biggest thing for me is, I think it's relationships. I think if you build relationships and trust, you can then impact the person's learning and performance. And when I say clear and effective communication, I think when I look back across, certainly my last 10 years in the senior space, I'd say 70 or 80% of that time is communicating with people and how you communicate. And then maybe 20 or 30% is the actual coaching. Um, because that corny saying of people don't care what you know until they know you care. We're excited to welcome Des Buckingham onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Des is currently head coach of Indian Super League Club, Mumbai City. Mumbai are one of the 13 clubs within the City Football Group. Des has also previously worked around the world, including coaching a New Zealand national team in a World Cup, before becoming part of the City Football Group, where he also worked at Melbourne City with their first team. Des, we're thrilled to have you as a guest on our podcast today. No, thank you for having me. Pleasure to speak to you both. So, a question we ask every single guest is to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Clear and effective communication. The biggest thing for me is I think it's relationships. I think if you build relationships and trust, you can then impact the person's learning and performance. And when I say clear and effective communication, I think when I look back across certainly my last 10 years in the senior space, um, I'd say 70 or 80% of that time is communicating with people and how you communicate. And then maybe 20 or 30% is the actual coaching. Um, because that corny saying of people don't care what you know until they know you care, you know, knowledge being power, it's not so much the knowledge that's power, it's how you apply that knowledge to the people you work with. So yeah, clear and effective communication to build relationships would be my gold dust. Yeah. So Des, before we, we delve into the discussion, would you mind sharing a, a brief introduction, including your, your footballing background and the experiences that have helped shaped your current journey? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm only 38 at the moment, but it's been a 21-year coaching journey to date. So I started when I was 17 as a young, what was an apprentice at the time at Oxford United, going through my coaching badges as part of being a scholar. Um, that progressed. I didn't move into professional football uh, at 19 and then ended up in a teaching role at Oxford and Chilwell Valley College for four years, um, which helped really set the foundation for what's turned into a, a coaching profession, I guess. Um Worked in my local club at Oxford United, where I'm I'm from and my family is still based. Uh, worked for 10 years through the whole academy and ended up in the first team uh, for the final three or four years of that. Uh, so it was a wonderful journey in terms of starting off what has turned into be, again, a career. Um, jumped across to New Zealand, worked in the, the Australian A-League. Uh, funny enough, with the Wellington Phoenix, who aren't based in Australia, but are actually in New Zealand. Had a wonderful three years there. 
jumped back across to the Premier League with Stoke with their 23s uh, for a year before heading back out to New Zealand to do the national teams. So took the under 20s uh, national team, took them to World Cups, uh, qualified the under 23s for the Olympics. And then COVID struck and um, I was fortunate to be snapped up by City Football Group and they own 13 clubs now around the world. And the first club that I was I went into was an assistant coach into Melbourne. Uh, and we, we had a very good first season and uh, an opportunity then opened up at another club that is operated by CFG in Mumbai. And there was a, a chance to go in and, and take this club on as, as a head coach. And that's kind of where I've been uh, for the last two years here now in India. So what initially sparked your interest in coaching? and led you to pursue a career in the sport? Mickey Lewis. So Mickey was a, a youth team coach, Oxford United, and Mickey actually coached me as a 16, 17, 18-year-old. And I think when I go back to the first answer, I give you around what is gold dust to me. I I look back, and, and I've tried to answer this question before around when people ask you about your favourite teacher or why was, your, why was he your best coach? And for me, it was just very simple. It was how he was able to relate to those that he worked with. And he got me so intrigued about what coaching was and what it could be and how he was able to just bring out the best in people, not just on the pitch, but in, in life. And that, for me, was what sparked my interest in, in coaching, was Mickey Lewis. Des, you've obviously talked about your, your current experiences and obviously what you've done and where you are right now. What factors factors do you believe have attributed towards your success that you've had to date? I think the biggest thing is, you know, I've always been a a relatively young coach and quite often, especially in the last 10 years, I've been in the senior space where I've actually been younger than either the majority or some of the players that I've been coaching. What I've found largely is to be as open as I possibly can to, obviously you don't know everything and there's, you can never know everything. But I've been so well supported in my journey to date, um, both in the environments that I found myself in, uh, firstly at the college, then at Oxford, and, and I won't go through the rest, but certainly with the people I've been fortunate to work for and with um, the opportunities they've afforded me, the trust and the support that they've given me, and the learning that's been enabled through that uh, has been it's been fantastic and it's uh, it's certainly helped get me to, to where I am at the moment, but I'm also conscious there's a lot more to learn and a lot more to do. But I'd, I'd answer that by saying the people that have, have passed on so much to me in what has been 21 years so far. What are some of your core values, Des, or guiding principles when you are coaching? I've got five. Um, I'll run through them and then sort of try and talk through them if I can. The, the first two are kind of similar. One's empowerment and the second is collaboration. And all I mean by that is it's, I think people know now more than they ever have done. And it's okay for for me, yeah, for others to know more than me. You know, my role is to bring the best out of the collective. So when I look around the staff that we have and I look around the playing group that we have, there's so many wonderful experiences. Um, there's so much, so much knowledge within a group. If you can harness that, and when I want to go back to empowerment and collaboration, where you can get people working together and really harness that shared knowledge, that takes you far further than one person ever could. So those two are key to me. Um, and then the others would be respect, which I don't think needs uh, any further any further description. Uh, and then integrity and enjoyment. Integrity just being 
and doing your best, even when nobody's looking, if you if you will. And then enjoyment. You have to enjoy it because <laughs> there's so many highs and lows. And I think when I reflect back on, I was at the Alame Awards last night and the stories I shared with the coaches that I was fortunate to speak with last night, very rarely do they talk about winning a trophy. It's all it's always about the journey that's got them to um, successful moments or the enjoyment they've had along the way. So enjoyment plays a massive role in in those. So empowerment, collaboration, respect, integrity, and enjoyment. And you're not mentioning anything about coaching? No, I think the coaching is layered on top of that or intertwined in amongst all of that. For me, I think if you can get the environment right and it incorporates five of those things, I think you're in a lot of, from what I've seen and what I've certainly experienced, if you can get those things right and the environment right, people feel safe, um, they can be themselves. And then what you do know hopefully relates, you can relate that to the people you work with a lot better because of that. When you first started coaching, I guess the priority may have changed, or has it? You know, we go from ball, big cone, player, grass. Now you're talking about collaboration. You're talking about empowerment. Has it changed for you? Or has that always been in ingrained in via some of the likes of Mickey Lewis and other people like you've been around? I think, again, without knowing as a 17 or 18-year-old when I started off doing a what ended up being three part-time jobs, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. But there's certainly the first four years learning to teach, I think set the foundation for what is a very large crossover between what I've I've known teaching to be and what coaching I think is. And that process behind people learning and how people learn and how to work with people topped up with some wonderful experiences I've had working with the likes of Mickey Lewis, with Les Taylor, with Chris Wilder, with Ernie Merrick in Australia, who all have different but very similar traits. Uh, I think those two meshed together are very much, I don't think I've changed, but what I'd like to think is is I've understood it a lot more now as I've got older, and I've certainly tried to embrace it and, and ingrain it into what I do. With that being said, Des, you've, you've obviously embarked on several new projects now. So obviously you, you touched on that at the start. What's one of the first things you need to know before you decide to move ahead with something? Yeah, I think there's always a, a whole host of questions. Um, I think the biggest thing, whenever I've gone into a, you know, I've always been a guest. I've, I've coached in four different countries now, England, New Zealand, Australia, now India. And I think whenever you go overseas as an English coach, you're always a guest in somebody else's country. And you're always generally going in to follow on from somebody else, whether they've been successful or, or otherwise, however you want to define success. So the biggest thing I've certainly found has been find out what has gone before you um, and recognize the good work and recognize the things that have worked well and see if you can actually take them with you. Um, you don't need to throw out everything just because you come in with new ideas and almost that top-down approach where you, know, you come in and everything underneath changes in terms of reserves and youth and the club itself. So recognize the good and take it with you. Uh, but then certainly my first experience of arriving into New Zealand, I'd grown up into Oxford and I was 29. I sp I'd grown up in Oxford 29 years. And what I had known life to be, both football and not football, was all I knew. Um, when I got to New Zealand, it was a very different country, very different culture, very different people and very different landscape. So to actually take some time to understand the differences that are there, because they're very different to what I grew up with. 
Um, so before even trying to have an impact or trying to bring something to the table that might enhance what they do or we do, it was trying to gain a clearer and better understanding of, of those things. So what have you learned from working with players from different backgrounds and nationalities? And how has that influenced your coaching methodology? Um, I'd say probably how much knowledge and experience that people and players and anyone now possesses. I think football is now more accessible to everybody, whether it be because of what's on TV or FIFA or championship manager. There's, I spoke to a, an under 10 recently and I asked him like, what was his favourite position? Where did he like to play? And he was very descriptive. He told me he liked to play the holding role of a midfield three and then just carried on describing what that meant. For a 10-year-old, it was a very eye-opening. But I think it was how much knowledge there is and how much experience players possess. And it's then the ability to try and, if you can, utilise it. I think from a Indian perspective, certainly the, the differences I've seen culturally, or sorry, um, religiously, so recognising and respecting religious beliefs because there are, you know, we don't, necessarily have too many of them in football in England but certainly overseas they're they're big um, and we went to the Champions League last year and we had five players actually observing Ramadan so sunset to to sunrise not being able to eat or drink which when you're obviously trying to train and compete and and play games at 7 30 in the evening to get their performances certainly uh, uh is an experience and then the last one I suppose in India in terms of how have I approached things um Certainly culturally, I think trying to engage with the players. When I first arrived, I remember sitting in the restaurant for the first two weeks and players would come in. They wouldn't make any eye contact. They wouldn't even acknowledge you as a coach. And they'd sit on the table, they'd eat their food and they'd leave. So I asked the question, you know, what have we upset them? Is it something we've done anymore? And it was something simple along the lines of they're not used or the Indian players weren't used to actually engaging with staff. It was very much staff, and then it was a separate group of players. And uh, we spent two years not trying to change their culture, but certainly trying to change the environment that we work within to make players a lot more comfortable um, to, again, be themselves. But also we want to involve them in the development of what we do and what they do. And to do that, they need to be part of it. So those types of things have been a, a wonderful learning experience. Ted, how have you adapted your coaching style? in terms of dealing with these cultural differences and expectations? Um, I wouldn't say I've adapted my coaching style too much. But as I said earlier, I think maybe I've learned a lot more about who I am as a coach and what that looks and feels like. Uh, my time in New Zealand, certainly the last three years I had there, we've done a bit of a deep dive with High Performance Sport New Zealand into what, as a person, not as a coach, but as a person, what were my values? Uh, what did I think my behaviours were? And, the idea behind it was a bit of a deep dive into yourself. So hopefully if you can understand what that is, it allows for a bit more of a consistent way of working regardless of situations or emotions or results. Um, and then the other would probably be uh, to embrace opportunities uh, that I was certainly wasn't used to. And again, I'll stick on New Zealand for a moment because we went on this journey. Um, so the indigenous people of New Zealand, uh, Maori people, we went on this um, course, if you will, where we were taken through, if you're invited onto Indigenous land, there's a way that you're invited on into people's um, whare, so their house, uh, and what that looks like. And it was around identity and purpose and um, th those types of things made me feel incredibly uncomfortable to start with. 
But what I did find was there were so many practices that actually are used, and it was specific to New Zealand culture that we actually tried to harness and bring into sport in New Zealand. And what we found was those practices that were used in the Indigenous world, in the Maori world, we tried to adapt and, and bring into football. And we found that it actually brought a group of players together very quickly. Um, and it allowed us to have a very clear and shared direction about where we wanted to go and and how we were going to get there. So, yeah, utilising and embracing opportunities that certainly are very uncomfortable, uh, maybe not used to, but there's probably two or three in there. Wherever coaching is, wherever amount, a number of coaches there worldwide will all come up with a slightly definition. But if I just change tact, in addition to being a certified pilot, you also have a master's degree in advanced performance coaching, football coaching through the University of South Wales. Do you find any parallels, Des, between the precision and attention to detail required in flying and the meticulous planning involved in coaching football? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, the first thing that's just jumped to my head when you've said that is probably, of course, planning. You can plan as much as you, as you like, same as you can do for a game. Um, but the moment you take off, you know, there's some some controllables and then there's a lot of uncontrollables, such as weather as, as being one. And the same as when the game kicks off, you know, do the opposition play the way you expect them to play or do things play out the way you expect? Um, so there's those things. But it, again, it, I'll take it back to probably uh, a level of calmness and not getting caught up in what can be quite dramatic and you know in, in the air very dramatic if you if you panic and you make wrong decisions in the air it can be can be a problem you know on the football pitch it can be a problem that might cost you a goal not so much a maybe a plane crash so I think remaining calm being very clear on what your plan and your process is and having some form of process whether that be you know a, 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 as it is in flying you know you have a checklist that you have to work through and you work through continuously as you're in the air or whether it's a a way of managing the game from minute one through to 90 and making changes and trying to see things that, uh, you know, whatever that process may look like to you and who that involves. So probably those two things. How do you keep calm in situations that are quite frenetic? I don't know if it's my, my background um, or the people I've been fortunate to work with. I, I don't tend to get too caught up in the emotion of what is happening. I always, I always like to try and gain as much information as I can before making decisions. I often, you know, sometimes that's not, that can't happen. I get that, especially in, in, in the game itself. Um, but it goes back to what I believe my values are and what I believe my behaviours are based upon those. And I think if, you know, look back across the last two seasons in particular here in Mumbai, I'd like to think regardless of whether things have gone well or they haven't, um, the way that I've certainly tried to behave and the way that I've operated, and it's the same as the staff and the playing group now, it, it's been, I'd like to think, consistent. Uh, and there hasn't been the highs and lows that you can get affected by because of that. Obviously, you're in first-team football now where results are important. So you have to win. You have to get results. So if you don't at the point, the chances are you, you end up getting fired. I think we've seen that quite a lot this year in the Premier League. How do you build a, a winning mentality and motivate your players to perform at the best? There's a book that I read recently. Uh, it was a book by Owen Eastwood, uh, and it's uh, called Belonging. 
and it's, it's very Owen Eastwood's very big on environment. I know he's done a lot of work with high performance teams, and I think the most recent one would have been England in the Euros. But he's uh, he's done a lot of work in New Zealand, and and he's from New Zealand, and that's where the uh, the fascination with him sticks with me. And he speaks a lot around that seventy percent of behaviour is determined by the environment. And so, in terms of how do how do you build a winner mentality and motivate your players? I think a lot of that is based around your environment and what that looks like. And I've got a story I'll share with you where, again, it's a story I stole from rugby in New Zealand, where we went to the under-20s World Cup and we, 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 as you always do, we spoke about identity and we used the Fare as a representative about who did we want to be and what did that look like on the field. And that then spilled into behaviours. And as part of those behaviours, the players came up with um, is it Simon Sinek's Simon Sinek's three circles, the what, the why, the how. Uh, so they described why, uh, what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was reach the knockout stages at the under-20s World Cup. Then they described how they were going to do that. And then they described the why. So we had this on a sheet, uh, but we were a week away from our first game. And I stole this, like I said, I stole this idea from a rugby story I'd been told in New Zealand, where I said to the staff, we have to challenge, we have to challenge this because if we don't, it's, it's just words on paper. And if the environment is right and it's a safe environment, it should it should be safe enough to be challenged without it hopefully burning down the foundations of what we thought we'd built. So one of the rules that the teams had put on there uh, was no mobile as part of their their how, and it was around no mobile no mobile no mobile phones in team meetings. So our team meetings would go for no longer than ten minutes, and it would always refer back to uh, principles of play and so on. But I pulled what was arguably the player that others would have referred to as one of the better players in the group and before the meeting and I asked him to go and get his phone and when he come back I said what what I would like you to do while I'm presenting bear in mind we've got three sort of three rows set up in a in a semicircle so I'd like you to pull your phone out discreetly pretend to send a message and put it back in your pocket and I said over the course of 10 minutes keep doing it until somebody challenges you and Within two minutes, he pulled his phone out, he checked it, he put it back in, and there was two guys either side of him that see it. They looked at me, didn't do anything. So we then split them into three groups. And he again pulled his phone out, he looked at it. Now he's got a group of seven players that have seen him do it, and nobody has said anything. And then we brought them back to as a collective, and he's pulled his phone out again. What I didn't realise at the time, the third time he pulled his phone out, he sent a message to our team manager and our team manager was sitting at the back of the room and wasn't aware of what I'd actually asked the player to do. So he's texted the team manager. Um, and the team manager's come storming forwards and took the phone off of the player. And when I asked what was going on, they wouldn't tell me. And the point to it was, and we said this to them afterwards, we've spoken about who we are, what we are, and we refer back to um, our identity and our fare and how we were going to hold each other accountable to certain things and what behaviours look like. And what we said was, if you can't be, if you can't hold each other accountable to something as simple as a rule on no mobile phones, everything that we've had on this piece of paper here is literally just words on paper. That's not who we are. That's not what you said you, we we do and, and how we operate. And what that did, I can come back to your original question. Sorry for the longer story. Um, that for me set a very strong uh, mentality uh, and set a very strong message and environment to the group where we wanted people to to work together we wanted to build that winning mentality and we wanted to motivate play, players to perform to their best but they knew to perform to their best 
we needed to work together and work in a shared direction. And we'd agreed on what that would look like. Um, and from that point forwards, we had a wonderful two and a half weeks where we really achieved some fantastic things. And I think that was a very big turning point for us. Setting boundaries. Did it galvanize the group? It did. It did. It was what we what we actually said to them was, you know, if it's if you're not going to challenge someone in the in the classroom on the in the meeting room space as it was, what's going to happen? We had some agreed principles, and that's all we referred to them loosely as being, which the group and the staff had come up with together, where we spoke about what do we want to look like in possession, uh, and there was four or five key principles that we come up with, which we then used and drove through trainings and common language throughout the the tournament. And we said, if we can't do this in a safe space in terms of the uh, the meeting space, what's going to happen that when we go out onto the field on game number one against Honduras? And we've said we want to be a team that plays out from the back, and we've discussed what that looks like, and we've trained what that looks like. But we want to be a team that plays out from the back if it's on. What happens if the goalkeeper kicks it long every time he gets the ball? You know, that's not going to not going towards what we we've spoken around, and we spoke around. Uh, Gav Chesterfield at the University of South Wales used a fantastic analogy around the, um, you know, the the uh, the relaxation balls where you drop one here and you almost have that pendulum swing where it does this. Uh, and he spoke around, you can have a very clear and shared direction around where you want to go, but how flexible are you and are the group on that? So if you want to be a team that play out from the back, that's understandable and acceptable. But if it's not on, how far are you willing to bend before you actually bring it back to who you say you are? Um, so that that was kind of the the main point that I think we took from that. Interesting. So whatever successes, there's depth behind what you do, and it's not just uh, gungo. There's lots of thoughts behind what you do in terms of the planning. But if you had to decide between being world class or world leading, what would your preference be, and why? Yeah, it's an interesting question because. I think we'd have to define what world-class was and what that actually looked like. Yeah, because I think the the thing upon our wall, which we always talk about being the best you can be. And I know going into a game, if I've done everything that I should have done, or if I haven't, you know, there's sometimes you, human nature, you skip some things and you think you can get away with it. But if you're world-class and to answer your question, I would, I would, if I had the choice between the two, and again, we'd have to define what world-class was and what it looked like. But I think if we go back to my values, which were integrity, I think world-class for me would be making sure you you would have done everything that you could have done to be the best you can be. And I had a wonderful saying from Les Taylor at Oxford United when I was there. He was the academy manager. And he would always speak to the young players. And his, his comment was always, you can't guarantee performance, but you can guarantee work rate and application to perform. Um, so, you know, you do everything you can to try and put yourself in the best position to perform well. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But hopefully if you've done everything you can to be the best you can be, most of the time you should be able to perform. And when I look back across our our team now, very rarely do we speak about um, winning or results. It's always about internal measures and making sure that we hit them more times than not because we've shown, whether it's world-class or not, we've shown that if you can continue to hit those measures and players can perform to those levels, that often results do follow. Now, in the frenetic world of football, I mean, you spoke about group team. It's not about me or I. 
Uh, but in this frenetic world uh, that we now live in, particularly you know, the constant change in landscape of football because of education and access across the world via the internet, how do you personally balance between leading others, managing upwards, and also being productive? Yeah, there's always lots going on. Um, even on holiday now, as I'm still speaking to you, the phone doesn't stop. But uh, it's, I think you have to utilize the skill set of those around you. Uh, I got back to that um, empowerment and collaboration. I don't, you know, I don't have to do, I don't have to do everything, or I don't have to be in control of everything. I think you go much further if you harness the experiences and the ideas of others. And there's a real clear and shared direction and approach to that. And um, the way that we manage that right now is we will have daily meetings with our staff group to make sure that we're all very clear on what today looks like um, and making sure there's consistent and, and clear communication between all of our departments. And then we'll have a, a weekly meeting across our heads of departments to make sure we're all across any anything that's coming up, any potential problems we see. Um, so, yeah, but to answer your question, I think you're utilizing the skill sets of the people around you. And in my case, it, it may be the assistant coach dealing with certain things. It may be the goalkeeper coach taking responsibility for certain things. It may be the uh, the analyst spending some further time with certain players because we've got good people and they're good at what they do. And I trust them. I, so all the environments I've worked in, I, I trust my staff. Uh, they know more than me in most areas. <laughs> But I think it's making sure that, you know, there's trust, but we're very clear on what those messages are. So if I wasn't there tomorrow, whether I was sick or I was ill, I'd be very comfortable that not just the assistant coach, that a couple of our, our staff could step in. The players would hear the same message, but it would just come from a different person. Well, how do you stay up to date with the latest trends and innovations in, in coaching and player development? And what strategies do you use to ensure your coaching remains fresh and effective uh i think for me it's you're trying to learn as much as you can um i've trying to stay trying to stay fresh and relevant is is always a challenge uh, it was one of the re you can go through your coaching badges and i've gone through mine now up to the pro license but taking on the the master's degree was to try and gain a, a deeper level of understanding but behind things i was certainly interested in uh, and then doing things outside that I thought might help and complement some of the coaching. So I, I think those things are, are key. Um, and then, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but I think surrounding yourself with people that do know more than you, because you can't ever be the smartest one in the room without sounding too corny. You you want to look, I'm, I'm somebody, I'm 38. I've, you know, I'm just relatively young. I'd like to think for a head coach, but I've coached for 21 years and I've been so fortunate to work with some wonderful people. Um, I'm so, I'm so keen to learn. There's a lot more to learn and there's a lot more uncomfortable positions I'm sure I'll find myself in as we go. But it's being open to those things and, and challenging yourself to be uncomfortable sometimes. So what lets you know you're doing the right thing, making the right decisions? That's, uh, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to think now experience. Uh, I think it's there's, there's a lot of research that around that suggests that I think it's you only actually remember if there's a game that's taking place, you only remember 40% of the actual game itself. So when you come back and reflect, there's 60% that you've lost. So it's it's measuring things in an agreeable way. So you've got the experience of the eyes of both myself and the staff. I think you then have some real shared and agreed measures, whether they be statistics or 
um, development plans and profiles that you're looking for and how you measure those. And if I look at what we've done this year, we've got two years worth of data now where we know the standards that we need to hit to not just perform, but to perform well. We know what they are in the league. Um, so physically, certainly, we can we can adapt our training plans to do that. So a lot of it is objective and being very clear on what those objective measures may be and look like uh, and then holding ourselves to them. So using analytics, metrics to be able to measure performance. But when you're making an assessment of your own players, do you analyse opposition as well? We do. Um, I spoke to Paul Simpson. This is way back uh, when he was doing the under-20s before they went to win the 20s World Cup. And he said something to me that really stuck with me. And it was around, and again, it's something that's common knowledge now, I guess. But he said, we've got a rule of 80%, 20%. And it was 80% us, 20% opposition. And it's something that stuck with me and something that I've certainly tried to take into the environments that, that I work in. And what I think what he said to me, what I've taken that to mean was we have control of our group. We have control of how we want to try and play. We know what we're trying to look for. So we try to spend as much time as we can doing that because we have control of it. The other 20%, we have to try and prepare our players for what we think we may face. But if we spend too much time and they kick off and they don't play the way you expect or they don't play the players that you think, uh, I think it's a lot of wasted time. So yes, we do assess and analyse. Um, but it's more on our own players. So when we do that, we have to know what we're looking for. And that's where that um, playing philosophy and and that identity piece that I spoke about earlier is very key because that ties into the player performance plans and profiles that we have. Um, so the players have all got individual plans. They've had real input and there's shared agreement on, on, a, on the objectives as to what we're looking for and what we are measuring. And they're, they're visited every week or two weeks. Um, so it's, it's that kind of plan do review to then have impact just to see and hopefully show progress. The 80-20 principle, that comes out quite a lot. Business model, very powerful at that. Nice to see that it's been implemented in the football and arena as well. Final question. What words would you offer to someone who have aspirations of pursuing a similar career path to yours? Gain as many experiences as possible, not just in football, but outside. I've learned as much from sports and people outside of football than I've learned within it. I think put yourself in uncomfortable positions. It's uh, there's a lot of uncomfortable positions to continually find myself in, and I'm sure I'm sure this won't be the last. Um, and then yeah, learn as much as possible through various forms. Uh, so going back to what I said earlier, I think people know now more than they ever have done, but there's so much to to learn and you're trying to stay in front of what is coming in, in the modern game. And I think if you can gain the exp gain as many experiences, both in and out of sport, put yourself in uncomfortable positions and um, yeah, learn as much as you possibly can and then probably be patient. And that's something I've had to learn, I think over the last six or seven years. When I first started out as a coach, the only full-time opportunity in football was to be a head coach. So everyone used to be, I say everyone, I can speak for myself. There used to be this race to be a head coach. But I think now it's being patient and recognizing that, you know, there's a long way to go. I'm 38. Uh, there's a lot to learn. And it's about trying to add as much knowledge and skill set and as experiences as I can to try and be the best head coach I can, because I want to coach at the highest level I can. And I have no idea where that will be. Right now it's in Mumbai and I'm really enjoying the challenge. 
But the most important thing to me is that I'm in an environment where I'm learning, I'm gaining experience, but also I'm trusted and supported. So it's being patient. And uh, that's in the last six years allowed me to get to where I have done because like you said earlier, football can be quite ruthless and uh, you have to do a good job in the job you're in. And that's kind of where I've found myself in the last four or five jobs where opportunities then open up because of that. Des, listen, thank you very much. That was very insightful. And sharing some of your, I think you're the first one to be the airline pilot or a certified pilot, that's for sure. But on a serious note, thank you ever so much. On behalf of David and myself, wish you well in the future. We'll certainly be following you now. I'm sure the guests will get great, massive insight from from your you shared insights around the game about life and equally it isn't just about grass players it is around building a culture of becoming a cultural architect so thank you ever so much no it's a pleasure keith and david thank you for reaching out in the first instance as well really good to speak to you both thanks for tuning into the golders podcast today if you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.